Berlin-based New Zealand artist Simon Denny's work has long explored the culture surrounding new technology and the dreams tech entrepreneurs sell us. Denny's latest New Zealand commission, Optimism, is at the Auckland Art Gallery through until October. And Optimism explores the culture behind the technology that enables space travel, satellites and speculative interest in future space colonies. Simon Denny continues to exhibit widely internationally. Indeed, right now in New York, he has no less than three exhibitions. I caught up with Simon, and given, as you'll hear, his interest in the colonisation of all manner of property, I started by asking him about his own residence in Germany. Right now, I'm uh, in my apartment in Berlin. Um, So uh, I've been living in Germany for, I don't know how many years, but since 2007, so quite a long time. 14 almost, probably. Something like that, yeah. And um, and I actually live in a building that I really uh, is a special building. It's a uh, it's a communist uh, modernist building from ah. from East Berlin. Uh, very tall building. I'm on the 18th floor, and uh, so I look out over part of former East and onto former West Berlin from here. Is that common? I mean, I remember from East Berlin the you know much uh, not as tall buildings. <laughs> no, it's uh, especially in the center of the city, it's not so common, but there's like a, a flagship development that was like right near the wall, um, which was sort of actually mm. like a, in, in a way, a competition with the West to kind of show the West right on the wall, like uh, just how oh. amazing the building could be in the East. And um, so there were this build, these buildings were actually kind of made for diplomats and stuff because you also could uh, see over the wall from these buildings. <laughs> well, so this, this, also, this all sounds strangely appropriate for an artist of, of your disposition do you own uh, the apartment there what's the the ownership i do yes well i me and anna bank but yeah uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's that type of situation uh, so yes it's it's interesting because exactly one couldn't own it in when it was built and uh, then because of political changes uh, i can own it which is uh, interesting yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you you moved it's say 14 years ago it was a time when a lot of your contemporaries in Aotearoa, New Zealand, were, were shifting over there. You know, Berlin is an art world centre. Is it still the same? Do you think that the, the whole economics for New Zealand artists and, and just generally for artists around Berlin is, is the same as it was then? It's definitely not the same. Um, it's a much more expensive city than it was. I mean, it was still kind of real estate here wasn't... Um, wasn't very expensive. It, it was still very, I would say, undervalued um, yeah. in... In, in a kind of post-war, uh, sorry, post-wall uh, coming down um, aftermath. And since then, like, you know, that's made a big difference to artists and creators, of course, because it was like a party city where it was very, very cheap to live when I moved here. And um, and it's increasingly got more and more expensive. In fact, I, you know, um, actually a lot of the people, not only from New Zealand, but from other kind of uh, places where, um, you know, people kind of came for a cheap uh international kind of hub have have left so friends from the us have often gone back there and friends from the uk as well so it's um it's a little bit more um it's of a different city and i think honestly the political climate has changed as well it's a yeah uh, it was a very kind of um end of history type vibe when i first moved here and uh, only a couple years before um had the german flag been uh able to be flown you know (laughs) since since the second world war and um and now you know creeping nationalism and and um and all these other um much more challenging uh things uh make it feel not quite as liberal as it once felt uh let's let's put it like that yeah 
Well, look, moving from that physical landscape to the digital one, it's about seven years ago now, I think you, you started doing exhibitions around blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, the politics, the economics, this whole idea of creating ownership in digital space. And um, the NFT, or the non-fungible token, as people will know out there, is an idea has had this kind of huge rise in cryptocurrency as well, that you know, and, and it's around that 2020, 2021 thing. But now all the talk is of it dying, or, uh, you know, that seems to be the flavor in the popular press. Um, and this yeah. has been a concern, a big concern, interest in your work. What, what hope is there for blockchain technology and, and the NFT at the moment? I mean, I don't know. It's um, that's what's exciting about working with new technologies. You just don't know where it's going, you know. Mm. Um, and I mean, you know, I've worked, I've made artwork about obsolete things. I've made artwork about very new emerging things. And I find that whole arc of boom and bust very compelling um, mm. in the technology, which is one of the reasons why I look at it so closely. And, and I, I guess I also find, you know, upcycle hype moments as compelling and interesting as like kind of crash moments. Um, and in fact, one of the NFT artworks that I did was about uh, crashed companies from the 2000s, you know, dot-com crash in 2001. Oh, tell so us, I, tell I us about of, that. Yeah, it's, it was called dot-com seance. Uh, and the idea was to kind of like resurrect and redeploy uh, companies from web one uh, as their business models and um, and kind of sell shares in them as NFTs uh, <laughs> and, and kind of, yeah, you know, claim that web one was coming back in web three. And um, uh, so, so I was very aware of that, even in the hype cycle when it was going up, that you know, it may not last. And um, and I find temporary uh, moments of, um, I don't know, uh, excitement and energy and, and capital deployment all the more, I don't know, culturally interesting. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a moment of, kind of insanity and fever. And that's like, I think something that actually is, uh, yeah, very common in our world, but, you know, it sort of pops up here and then it pops up there. At the moment, it's about AI. And in fact, we used mm. um, these early uh, image generating um, uh, kind of text to image generators to make the imagery that we sold in that NFT um, uh, <laughs> that I mentioned, .com seance, uh, before it uh, turned into a major consumer-facing product. That was the that was the um, algorithm that kind of went on to become Midjourney, which a lot of people are really aware of now. So it was a sort of, yeah. Anyway, it's these these things happen. Um, I, I find it really amazing to kind of watch things as they rise and as they fall. Well, I was very, you know, it's very appealing as a soundbite. Um, the the work that you did for Art Basel Art Fair in 2021, Economist Chart NFT, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. A sort of, yeah. it's been dubbed an intentionally lackluster NFT where you just did a simple static graph that you, I think you collaborated with an economist tracking housing prices, which is really, really interesting. And then all the proceeds they did, you know, were sort of all these institutions that the crypto collectors would, wouldn't care about right yeah we we donated actually to the canton in basel where the you know the kind of so the state entity where which which was hosting it that was actually at uh the kunsthalle basel it was uh yeah very very fun nft and uh yeah i mean housing prices obviously are another thing that kind of come and go uh famously up only uh for a very long time and exactly I, something about NFTing a chart itself seemed to me kind of like the perfect uh, anti-art gesture to <laughs> insert into this NFT hype moment, you know. Um. There's a point where you just, I mean, that work is really interesting to me in that it really speaks to the good in the world, you know, the public good, mm. and that, that this kind of 
this virtual world full of investors and doing things that just seem to be mining us for uh, extracting stuff f- from us. I mean, I mean it, it can yeah. be disillusioning as an artist to be working so much with a topic which seems to be at our expense. Well, I mean, it depends on which narratives you listen to. And again, this is like why I think from an artist's perspective, it's so interesting because, you know, I listen to criticism and I understand criticism of these emerging products, but yeah. I also understand the the people who are building them and why they're excited about them, you know, and if you take the narratives uh, that technologists have at face value that, you know, there's, there's often something there. So like, for example, with NFTs and digital ownership, um, I mean, the notion that, yeah, after a kind of world where we are kind of, you know, as you say, like in, in platform capitalism or, or something like that, when we're all on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and we're kind of creating these kind of valuable social mm. interactions, which we can't profit from, but those companies who kind of facilitate our interaction can. Um, the, the proposition with being able to own content on the internet in a more granular way, you know, like you can own a JPEG with NFTs, or like you can own a kind of a share in a project that is kind of automatically um, distributed uh, using NFTs. That was a proposition that was sort of supposed to enable a, a web in which some of the proceeds that happen in that online economy can also go to individuals, users, whatever. So that's the that was the kind of utopian promise of the crypto moment. And it, you know, we may see it come back. I mean, yeah. uh, there's a one of the people that I really follow uh, in the in the kind of investment and technology world, uh, a company called um, Andreessen Horowitz, and there's a guy called uh, Chris Dixon who um, is releasing a book just now called Read, Write, Own. Um, and it's all about exactly that type of narrative where you can kind of own a part of the internet. And, and you know, like anything else, maybe like people are familiar with in, in, in New Zealand very much with like housing, you can, you know, you can kind of uh, own a part of what you use and, uh, and the places that you add value to. And then the kind of on paper value of those things can go up and you can kind of, you know, borrow or share against those things. And, and what if that can happen? Uh, with digital assets and what if that can happen with yeah. you know projects that are built groups on the internet that's kind of the 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 upside potentially yeah yeah and i see that that's crept into the title of your, your exhibition you're about to have in new york at a what an artist run space in the form of dunkin donuts that read right own <laughs> Um, but yeah. then, this other title, Optimism, that, that is for this Auckland Art Gallery Commission, feel, like it feels like it really connects to this in terms of what we have to be optimistic about. You know, we're starting a new year at the moment. People are thinking about Gaza and Trump and climate change and AI and the sort of reach of these tech yeah. companies, the schism between right and left here in New Zealand. I mean, you know, there's a lot of reasons for people to feel pessimistic here. So it's really interesting that you've called a work Optimism. Yeah. Well, that's again coming from observing kind of a an, another type of cultural divide where, you know, if you're looking at investors and um and people building technology companies, they often um invoke optimism and this is something that one hears over and over again if you pay attention to that context. And um actually the same investment company Andreessen Horowitz, they released a kind of a manifesto about technological optimism which partly was the inspiration for the title for what I was building um, in New Zealand. But yeah, I think it is a real tension. And it's, uh, um, as you say, there are a lot of things to be worried about. And, you know, the the technologist's uh, answer is uh, there's also a lot to be optimistic about. How can we be optimistic about these giants in terms of, you know, and we're talking not just, of course, about digital space. We're talking about the, the Elon Musks and the uh, Jeff Bezos of the world going right. into space. It's a very pessimistic moment it seems in terms of where the control mechanisms are for our future 
Yeah, I mean, again, like if we're talking about space in particular, uh, yeah. which is what the optimism is is addressing. Um, again, I, I find a, a very interesting tension there because, uh, you know, again, if you believe the people building the products, they they say that you know this is we're taking humanity forward. We're going to become a multi-planetary, uh, you know, uh, species. This is something to get very excited about. Uh, and and the critique that you're bringing, which a lot of people bring, I think as well, is like, well, you know, who's in charge of those projects and and who will benefit from them, right? And uh, if we look back in the space industry, you know, it's all, another narrative that often comes up is like, you know, it used to be something that was done in close collaboration with states, um, and and now it's moved more into the private sphere. In fact, it is like a private company boom in space technology um, at the moment, which is also part of why I chose to focus on this industry right now. But again, I think those histories are a little bit more complicated sometimes as well. And, and you know, space tech has always been tied up with the military. It's always been tied up with US attempts at a global kind of power um, and and competition in that space as well, obviously with uh, with Russia in the mid-century. Um, so I think, uh, and, you know, private companies were always very, very close to those efforts as well. And I mean, it's interesting that we are now, as as New Zealanders, are kind of participating in that um, in a way that we didn't in the mid-century, right? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Rocket Lab uh, is is the company that the show is really directly inspired by, and this is sort of the first time that uh, that I've been aware of that New Zealand's had such a big, um, I guess, like stake in in the possibilities of um, doing things in outer space. So again, so some people would say that's a, it's a real moment for optimism because uh, there's things happening, um, uh, new things happening uh, that uh, are really. Yeah, in a different way than we've known before. Well, yeah, I was I was in reading for this interview, Simon. I was I was astonished that we there hadn't been more in our media about the fact that in early January there was an announcement that Rocket Lab would be producing eighteen satellites for the U.S. military space force. Like I think it's yeah. called their proliferated warfighter space architecture. I mean, I know they're kind of right. based in. Uh, the U.S. now, but it, it's, it's a, that's a pretty big thing for a company that was founded in in, in New Zealand. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Does it? Don't you get worried that Rocket Lab kind of gets seen as a sponsor of your show, and you become part of that? I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the global art world for you know ten, twelve, fifteen years about money from the weapons manufacturer kind of industry yeah. in the art world. It must be really hard to keep this kind of ambiguous place that it feels like your art's trying to take. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see it as so new for me, and I also don't see it as so new for art. Um, I think that, um, you know, art, art has to be paid for by something, and, uh, you know, it can be states or it can be patrons. Um, mm. And, I mean, just to be clear, Rocket Lab paid for none of this. In fact, they knew nothing about the fact that I was making it. Um, oh, that's interesting, but, though. Mm. Yeah, uh, this is not something I usually do. Um, well, in fact, I've ever done. I've never done a company commission, though it might be an interesting thing to do. But <laughs> you know, I, I guess I feel like I'm working in a tradition um, of uh, of like pop art. If we're going to go very broad, right? Uh, you know, um, and we have New Zealand examples of people that worked in that tradition. Um, but you know, the most famous internationally would be you know, people like Andy Warhol, and when he made images of soup cans, they also weren't sponsored by uh, Campbell's Soup um, uh, at the beginning. And it was also, you know, not about um, advertising for them in particular, but like focusing on how big a cultural impact I think those kind of um, images had um, and those brands had. So I, I feel like I'm kind of like not turning on new territory here. And I mean, another thing that I did for New Zealand, which I think 
existed in this space between you know commercial companies and things that are associated with the military um was my show that i did for venice um about mm. uh, called secret power which was all about uh new zealand's involvement with the five eyes um uh surveillance uh you know alliance that uh, is led by the us and um so i think these kind of military and state associations uh that are kind of in the background of the work um at the Auckland Art Gallery Optimism have been concerns of mine and and performed in my work for quite a long time. Yeah, it's interesting high stake stuff, isn't it? I mean, when you think about what your pro- what are your most successful projects when you're able to kind of straddle this line. A lot of people will look at these projects of yours, I feel Simon, and sometimes feel like you're just kind of shining the crowns, you know, clever artist recognizes the cleverness of these entrepreneurs and the significance of what they're doing culturally. Trying to keep that place. And I mean, I remember this even when you were looking at kim.com where Right. You're not just, you know, polishing the pedestal, but at the same time, you're not being didactic uh, and just, yeah, it's it's tricky. Well, I I don't find it tricky uh, personally, um, because I think it's uh, I think that's the way a lot of people experience these phenomena. Right. Like, I I guess I make art from, a, you know, uh, of course, I'm an artist, but I'm also a person. And I kind of think about things that I see and and genuinely I, I feel very ambivalent about a lot of things. And I think a lot of people do. So mm. when the phenomenon came along, for example, it was both fascinating, compelling and kind of like scary and repulsive, <laughs> right? It was all of those things at once. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, personally as a viewer, I also don't really enjoy artwork all that much. If I know there's like a lesson in there for me to learn, I just don't think that's the role of art. I think the role of art and the idiom that I'm making it, from within, like from within the tradition that I'm working in, it's all about making things that kind of propose and open questions and and maybe stir feelings rather than kind of give you a, yeah, something to walk away with where you're kind of more sure about a position in the world. It's more about destabilizing rather than stabilizing. I visited Optimism at the Auckland Art Gallery. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And um, well, I was I was up there in January. Uh, and it may be to sort of describe the experience for people. I'm thinking, you know, you go into this very high at- atrium and the the opening of the gallery there and the high ceiling, there are these two what look like models of spacecraft with these kind of Sputnik-like kind of rods off them with tabs that we kind of then realise it's from a patent drawing, right, from a rocket lab, from some rocket ship, some spaceship parts, or some rocket yeah. rocket parts. And you've then got this invitation to pick up iPads from these displays that are set into these whiteboards, I think, you're, you bought from a... Twitter liquidation sale. I'll just ask you about that in a second. But the um, and then you can open the app and you get this augmented reality kind of Star Trek experience where beams of light come off it and you you stand in the beam of light. You directed your your iPad up to it and you're getting all of these images of uh, augmented reality of almost like a real estate brochure of what a space colony <laughs> set of people might be. Right. It's, yeah, that's it's, a great description, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard one to put into words, Art, but it's it's kind of a really interesting thing around. Well, let's let's start with those that that, that the Twitter liquidation sale, and I know you've got some of these whiteboards in your show in New York coming up. What was the idea of bringing those into this show? I mean, I really like uh, you know when, when I make a show and when I make um, artwork, I, I I think a lot about material you know, uh, what what the stuff is made of, because I think significant objects carry with them 
some kind of feeling, you know, yeah. um, there's a life of an object. And so one of the parts of my uh, making is kind of trying to find very interesting objects that I can work with as material. And uh, one of the things I've taken to do is watch very closely like um, estate sales and uh, and kind of uh, liquidation sales from companies because I love to get and work with objects that have had a past that can kind of bring the, that history uh, into my work and and kind of give people a bit of a, a feeling. And, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk, somebody so associated with space uh, tech, uh, taking over maybe the most important social media platform in the world, uh, Twitter. That was a momentous event, I think, in, in, in the kind of cultural history of technology companies. Mm. And the fact that I was able to buy something that he decided was surplus needs uh, to Twitter um, and kind of repurpose that as a, as a kind of a bay, as a dock for these windows into these future worlds, I think <laughs> that was just, yeah. It, it was just too good to be true, you know? So <laughs> we I bought these things. Um, I made little... Uh, little holes, little docks in them. And, and and so they sit there charging in these screens that were, you know, used uh, once upon a time um, for people designing Twitter, right? So I, I just think that's really <laughs> an amazing portal. Yeah. So there's that moment in the show. And then, um, and this connects to something that people can see in their stationery store or wherever they get it on now these days. <laughs> a new art news, uh, the New Zealand magazine you've done the cover for. And... Um, this connects to what I you can see when you you look through that iPad up at, and see the augmented reality around these so-called spaceships with these space colonies, which is the uh, the work on the cover of Art News is what looks like a space colony, right? It's uh, basically it seems to me that you, you, this references Jeff Bezos back in 2019 proposing to build the space colony not on a planet, but out there floating around that had been proposed by an American physicist, Gerard K. O'Neill, a cylinder kind of idea. And you have kind of merged that with the rocket lab designs as, as this kind of space settlement proposal, right? Um, yeah, that's the thing. You know, uh, I mean, Bezos is one. I mean, all of these major, major technology um, entrepreneurs from the US are very interested in space. You know, so so yeah, not only Musk, but Bezos has his own space company, Blue Origin. And yeah, one of the things pro proposed recently or revived recently um, was something that was. Uh, developed in the mid-century um in in dialogue with nasa by artists um <laughs> and, and engineers which was yeah kind of uh the idea of like a spinning cylinder that created gravity and therefore kind of created a space to live and there are these amazing images that were produced um by artists like don davis um during the early 70s uh, mm. of these which i think recur again and again and again in popular culture and have inspired things in movies like 2001 and you know whatever star star wars star trek um you name it um but they also uh that that cover that i did for um art news new zealand has a has an image that i produced after these images so they're very similar but they're kind of updated and and they're you know aligned with the shapes that were in the patent designs from the rocket lab patent drawings um but they also refer to a very early magazine also that celebrated this culture in the 1970s um, called Coevolution Quarterly, uh, which is another little geeky geeky reference that I have in there. Um, Coevolution Quarterly was a part of the Whole Earth Catalog Network. Um, oh, really? Uh, published by Stuart Brand. Um, and the Whole Earth Catalog was inspired indeed by outer space, inspired by the blue marble image of, uh, of the whole earth floating there um, to represent a kind of a connected uh reality and uh that inspired many technologists in turn as well so there's this kind of 
cultural symbiosis that that has come together um where space and technology and entrepreneurs and and people building these things inside of uh, nasa uh, and artists uh, have kind of been circling around the same thing so that's almost an exact copy of a co-evolution quarterly um but with my imagery and uh, uh and my um uh, my ideas yeah. so again kind of recalling this kind of optimism <laughs> Uh, but interestingly, I mean, I was thinking around your work, and obviously, the, this this is this kind of sense of new territories of what is the next thing, the next property to extract. You know, you've you've dealt a lot in the past with mining, and we're talking physical mining, and then we we you know we talk about crypto in the sort of digital mining space, and this kind of you know this line of interest here, which is I guess around colonization, right? Uh, the next frontier yeah. being space and, and the connection with New Zealand as this new frontier that was, in a sense, mined or farmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the you know, obviously, one of the reasons why I also chose to focus on these uh, space colonies, which are being talked about again, is because, yeah, the idea of the colony is, is very present in the New Zealand imaginary. Of course, I grew up very aware of the fact that I grew up in a in a, in a former colony, colony depending on um, how you want to describe it, um, and uh, and I think all of those questions that come up around uh, the you know the the dangers and uh, and, and difficulties and, and and injustices around colonization, uh, you know that's something you don't hear much uh, in the uh, in the conversations around space technology, um, yeah. because uh, and nor around digital technology. Actually, this is one of the other things I, I recently did some work where I kind of made landscape paintings of new uh, kind of digital territories that people were buying and selling. Yes. And uh, and narrative that comes uh, with those uh, is also one of discovery and expansion and all these kinds of things that get used um, in in language that's very familiar to New Zealanders, I think, and and the history of New Zealand. Um, and often there's, you know, claims that, of course, we're not displacing anybody this time, that everybody can come with. But I think, um, you know, the, I think New Zealanders are in a really good place to think about what colonization means uh, in this context and, uh, you know, based on our, uh, you, you know, lived knowledge of, of what it's been like to uh, be in one and, uh, and, and after one, again, depending on how you see it. You were born in um, New Zealand? I was, yeah. I was born in Auckland. Yeah. Yeah. So Pakeha. I mean, this whole idea of being a settler. It's interesting about how we own who we are and how we kind of think about that through our practice, right? Um, particularly at the moment when so much of the art practice over here is so concerned with this kind of sense of where we come from. And I think it. I think it has been for a really long time. I mean, I think New Zealand modernism was full of these types of questions. And you know, when I went to art school, uh, it was also one of the first things I learned about with these types of conversations, which were I found really amazing and sophisticated. One of the first professors I had um, at the Auckland University's Elam School of Fine Arts was uh, Michael Potokofi. And, uh, you know, <laughs> having an understanding of uh, of the way he saw the world through learning about sculpture with him was just unbelievable. And, and you know, uh, I learned uh, so much about so many different types of things. You know, on the one hand, I learned a lot uh, from him about how he saw the world and how he saw New Zealand from his perspective. But I also learned a lot about the history of pop art, um, you mm. know, so... Uh, and I think these these um, in between traditions are something that uh, New Zealand's really had a strength for. Um, and you know, it's weird living in in Germany. Uh, you know, conversations around um, yeah, trying to deal with colonial pasts and presents uh, and potential futures um, is only kind of just starting. Whereas I, I felt like it was happening at such a sophisticated level, even in my undergraduate um, 
conversation, uh, you know, uh, with 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 my class, uh, with Michael and, and his peers. Um, so yeah, it's a it's it's a crazy world. But I mean, one of the things I really uh, felt uh, moving away w when I was quite young was, um, you know, it it changed my idea of what uh, being what what home was. And now I live mm -hmm. in a country where I don't really have much. Uh, I guess, um, direct connection with cultural things in a way. Uh, I, I don't feel very German, even though I've lived here a really long time. And uh, I, I feel, I think part of the reason why I started making work about things like uh, technology and technologists and also these histories that, that relate to the space conversation is because I really related to this notion of um, of opting in to communities, you know, of having mm. communities that were formed outside of nation states and, you know, early utopic discussions around the internet um, uh, that happened in the 90s and again in the 2000s when I kind of came to know about them were all about, you know, uh, communities of affinity and people that came together because they wanted to and, and you know, being between systems and cultures rather than having to claim uh, a nation state identity, which in some ways I don't always feel totally comfortable with. Um, yeah, yeah, in myself, it doesn't. Uh, so real, you know. Well, that's really interesting, Simon. Um, and thank you for talking about that. Um, it kind of brings me back again to these paintings you've been doing. Oil on Canvas, the Metaverse Landscapes. I think you're about to show some more in New York. And this brings us back to modernism as well. But again, I understand they're representations of another other space, Decentraland, a Metaverse space. Uh, can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, so I mean, we started the conversation talking about NFTs. One of the things that became um, visible around uh, the same kind of hype cycle time was people buying and selling digital properties in things that were starting to be called metaverses, right? And and Facebook's Meta, uh, you know, engaged in this narrative pretty heavily as well. But there were these kind of um, they still exist, but there was a, a kind of a, a hype for these new properties that one could buy and sell that were kind of connected to a token. And it had a kind of real estate rush around it where prices inflated and stuff like that. Um, and and they were kind of, you know, virtual worlds uh, that when you enter them kind of look a bit like Second Life or, I don't know, Minecraft or <laughs> Roblox, you know, something like these, these gaming worlds. Um, but you could kind of buy a certain section of them. And uh, and buying and selling the sections was a was was kind of as much activity as as people building things inside them. Um, so there was a sort of real estate rush, and I got really interested in how the tokens that represented these pieces of land looked. You know, they, when you bought one, you got a kind of square of a map that looked in different metaverses uh, slightly different. And uh, and Decentraland, which was one of the most prominent ones, looked a lot like um, mid-century modernist painting. It looked like a kind of de Stijl painting by Mondrian. Um, or something like that, you know, lots of grids and squares, um, and you would kind of own a certain square amongst other squares, you know, um, so it would be at once kind of a, a modernist abstraction, it looked like to me, but it was also a financial abstraction, it was also a kind of abstraction of space and value, I, and I just got very excited about all of these things kind of collapsing together, and uh, and to reflect this, I kind of started to make paintings of those uh, tokens, you know, of mm. those properties. Um, they were also kind of linked to new new NFTs that tracked the owner. So uh, w whenever you kind of looked at one of these paintings, you could kind of scan a QR code on the side, look at it, and and see who owned it at the time. You know, so so provenance, who owns what, uh, you know, what type of um, spatial and financial abstraction um, and pictorial abstraction was at work. Uh, this is what these uh, metaverse landscapes or, or or kind of landscape paintings were um, that that I that I that I 
have been making and will be showing again, yes, uh, next month. It's uh, you know, it's it's really interesting this kind of connection between this meta, these metaverse landscapes and the modernist abstraction of the last century, and and again this kind of optimism that is about both. And sometimes right. it does feel, and this kind of goes back to a riff I had before, like a sort of a smokescreen for us. You know, not being conscious of what we're doing to the planet. You know, while while we're busy, and yeah. you know, in the fifties and sixties, enjoying and celebrating these kind of new physical products and technology that we can kind of make. Now we're now we're doing it in the digital space while we're ripping shit out of the, of the planet. It's, yeah, I mean, again, there's so many ways to to see that. You know, and <laughs> uh, certainly people make claims to you know digital uh properties and and expansions into various different virtual worlds to be much less of an impact than building giant concrete buildings and and flying in planes across the globe you know so uh there are kind of uh you know utopian stories that go along with um creating and 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 uh and maintaining virtual economies and virtual worlds um but of course yeah uh i've done big projects which also look at the um you know the material impact of uh, of of building new technologies, which are not insignificant um, either. Mm. So uh, it's, it is a deeply uh, ambivalent um, endeavor from a certain perspective. From another perspective, it's a it's a step forward into a place where where growth won't maybe have quite the same impacts as it has done uh, in the in the physical world. Finally, Simon, I'm you know I've been doing some reading that you've of some work that you've written around NFTs and blockchain based work, and it's really exciting to to read a little bit about the sort of this generative art that's happening. You know, art where you know where yeah. the art is kind of the code, you know, where the work can mm-hmm. kind of morph and change, and it, yeah. it kind of almost still surprises me there aren't more artists, at least from a context here in Aotearoa, that I know of who are really are working at least that i know of in this kind of space i'm not interested in what sort yeah. of work and you know like there's a site called outland.art that um you're, yeah. you're writing directed me to there's a lot of really interesting stuff there what sort of work is exciting yeah. you and do you think that this is kind of going to continue to be a growth area again it's a little hard to say and that's part of the exciting part you know it's a, it's a little bit like you don't know if it's going to be art made on cd-roms which by the way was a thing um and some <laughs> yes. amazing work made on cd-roms um, really, really amazing art projects, or it's going to be something uh, you know more akin to uh, painting, which at, at some moment in the NFT hype cycle, people claimed they, they were going to competing, and, and indeed there were large prices for NFTs. <laughs> um, but but anyway, yeah, I don't know why more people uh, in New Zealand weren't attracted to working in that idiom or that medium as such. I, I knew a few people in that space, and indeed there are some significant crypto actors in New Zealand. Um, actually, one of the co-founders of uh, one of the most successful NFT projects, uh, Miladies, which is a very kind of controversial thing. It's also um, a subculture in a way, uh, was a, a New Zealand co-founder, actually, mm. uh, very, very interestingly. So, so there are prominent New Zealand actors in the NFT space, um, maybe less visible to the art world um, there, but uh, but very interestingly, um, yeah, close. But uh, but yeah, generative art and is has been around for a long time. Um, the idea that you would make an algorithm that would kind of produce a series of outputs and all of those outputs become a kind of an addition um, of of that artwork, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's existed for NFTs, but it's a lot more easy to own and trade them. It's a very it's a very kind of I guess, uh, native space uh, for for NFTs. But for me, you know, uh, I'm a little bit perverse sometimes in, in the work that I'm attracted to. Mm. As I said, I really like pop art and I love the history of conceptual art. Um, so, uh, you know, I love generative art, but I think for me, my, my real passion is around projects that are, are more looking at, um, you know, conceptual versions of deploying the technology rather than necessarily 
uh, algorithmic runs. Some of, if I can criticize um, some of what's happening in generative art, it can become a little samey where you have these very kind of, you know, beautiful, um, relatively abstract patterns that uh, just look a little bit like screensavers um, <laughs> ad nauseum. You know, I, that's not all of them. There's some really amazing ones. But for example, there's a, there's a work uh, which I really like, which is both generative and conceptual um, called JPEG uh, by uh -huh. um, uh, Jan Robert uh, Lerger. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy from, um, uh, from uh, the Netherlands. And these are um, actually uh, digitally generated images that look like corroded JPEGs, but are not. So it has that same weird pixely corruption that you know from a, a shitty JPEG, but they're actually kind of uh, generatively produced um, algorithmic outputs. People can see those online, Simon, or are they? Yeah, you can find uh, his work on uh, on OpenSea, which is one of the um, the largest um, uh, secondary marketplaces for NFTs. Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, there are really amazing smart versions of that, and and there's many, many more. That's just one um, that comes to mind. Um, but yeah, you, you know, I found uh, the whole NFT world, which is smaller than it was, but still goes on with really interesting projects very very exciting as it came out because it, it felt to me like a small group of artists making exciting things with a completely new medium and a completely new marketplace and a completely new group of people who are interested in buying and selling them so it's not so often that uh you know these things emerge um and explode it's it's really rare so to ha have been able to participate in a small way um in the beginnings of that is uh yeah one of one of the highlights of my my art career actually well, thank you, Simon, and congratulations on your ongoing work. Stay optimistic. <laughs> <laughs>